back to Peace in Their Time, episode 74, Red Lows. This week, we're taking a little interlude away from the Northern Expedition and the Nationalist perspective to close out what has now become a separate thread to our larger narrative. The Communists, in the aftermath of their violent and sudden break from the KMT, were laid low, and the time immediately afterwards was one of intense soul-searching, reorganization, and figuring out how to simply survive in drastically changed circumstances. The double cross by Chiang Kai-shek against the CPC in 1927 was surprisingly effective given how joined at the hip that party in the KMT had been. Not only had the communist allies in the KMT been cowed by their generalissimo, the communists' own efforts at launching uprisings to counter Chiang's betrayal had been abysmal failures. The movement had effectively been driven underground, and its members were hunted within the cities from which it derived so much of its natural support. Because while the CPC recognized and had high hopes for the enormous rural peasantry of China, the urban proletariat was their key to influence in the economic and cultural hubs of the country, and they couldn't reach those places openly now. Sure, they could set up contacts, go-betweens, do some organizing on the DL, but while the KMT was entering its most powerful and prestigious phase of its existence, this was going to be difficult. Keep in mind, during 1927 and 28, it was the KMT that captured the imaginations and idealism of the vast majority of the country. The message of the communists had been certainly been popular, but they had been functioning as a component of the KMT at the time. When push came to shove, the majority of the country that was politically engaged was going to go with the nationalists. To be sure, this wasn't going to hold forever, and the public's disillusion with the Kuomintang was going to be key in not just the CPC surviving, but eventually supplanting them. But that was going to be a process that would take over 20 years to complete after 1927. At that still early stage, there were going to be some really hard years ahead. The first big shakeup came at the very top of the party. Chen Dujia was understandably discredited as the leader of the CPC, and on August 7, 1927, was forced to resign his positions. A Politburo was established in Shanghai, which, like its Soviet equivalent, was basically a governing committee of the party. They had precious little to govern, though, and their isolation in Shanghai, while most of the movement was concentrated down south, meant that they were terribly out of touch. While Chen's successor ordered the autumn uprisings that I covered last week, there was little in the way of effective guidance coming from the top of the party's leadership in the aftermath of those disasters. Again, not that there was much of an organization left that demanded extensive mechanisms of control. The bulk of the movement had wound up coalescing in the backcountry of southern Zhangji. This was probably the safest haven for them, as that particular sector was an underdeveloped backwater of a province that was itself an underdeveloped backwater. It was the common opinion of the communists that they had wound up in the literal ass-end of China. It was all hills, mountains, and jungle, all hallmarks of the south, but somehow even more pronounced in that specific place. The strategy of what to do next was largely decided for them given the surroundings. The idea of worker strikes and nationally organized labor was firmly out. They were going to build up a movement from scratch among the peasants that they were now surrounded with. And there would be no mass uprisings for now. Their resources were non-existent, and the army at the KMT's disposal, whether it was the formidable NRA or the hodgepodge warlords they had stitched together, were far too powerful to engage head-on. It was going to be guerrilla warfare from that point going well into the future. And by guerrilla warfare, I mean a handful of outfits actually doing some real, actual guerrilla warfare and a whole bunch of other peasant groups practicing the age-old trade of banditry. 
This would be the start of what would become known as the communist base camps. Communities controlled by the communists that acted both as springboards for their guerrilla battles as well as incubators for the proposed socialist society to come. The first was the one set up by Mao Zedong. After the failure to take Changsha, the capital of his own home province of Hunan, Mao barely managed to escape with his life, but he did manage to organize a thousand followers in the Jinggongsheng Mountains. There, they established the first base camp on the southern portion of the Zhongzhi Hunan border in early October 1927. There, he consolidated the survivors into a single regiment. It was referred to by Mao as the 1st Regiment of the 1st Division of the 1st Workers and Peasants Revolutionary Army. Never mind that the unit barely qualified as a regiment, but it was a demonstration that Mao was thinking big. This was his moment, when he was distanced from the rest of the party and despite the dire circumstances, now had room to experiment. The Politburo tried to pin the blame for the Changsha operation failing by expelling him from his leadership positions, but he simply carried on with what he was doing in southern Zhongzhi and demonstrated the short reach of the CPC's sitting leadership. In Jinggongshan, Mao was the ultimate authority. Starting with his humble regiment, he planned to craft the new Red Army in the image established by Blücher and the other Soviet advisors for the NRA. He added the twist of incorporating party elements into every level of its organization, ensuring that not only was there a professional organization to the army, it was also set up to be politically reliable. Which might sound like a basic thing, but keep in mind this was warlord-era China here. Uh, it was a big step up from the ad hoc uprisings that consisted of motley collections of barely armed people and maybe some defecting warlord units. It also placed Mao at the top of the command chain in that locality, meaning he was finally getting some vital experience in mass organization and leading large bodies of people. Jinggongshan itself carried both pros and cons as a home base. The biggest pro was that it was virtually unassailable, being situated on a mountain range of the same name that was covered in thick forests and consistent cloud cover. The big downside is that the area barely supported the 2,000-person local population, so the sudden appearance of a thousand soldiers meant local food supplies were wholly insufficient, which meant grain had to be carried in from elsewhere, and when I say carried, I mean that word exactly. The lack of pack animals was such that rice had to be hauled in on the backs of people. This encouraged Mao to deploy his troops into the more fertile, outlying areas as quickly as possible. For the winter of 1927-28, the 1st Regiment would fan out across southwest Zhongxi, taking towns, dispossessing landlords, securing food, and gaining converts from local KMT forces by actually showing mercy and kindness to any detachments that they overcame. All of these skirmishes were low-level affairs happening within a 30-mile radius of Jinggongsheng. So, this was all small potato stuff, the kind of thing I wouldn't even bring up, and do so only because it turns out that, as we've covered over and over again on this podcast, big things have small beginnings. The KMT was also not completely helpless, even though its troops in the area were local and not exactly the cream of the NRA crop. And every time Mao scored a success, it would be turned around when authorities were able to marshal ever larger forces that the 1st Regiment could never be expected to counter. It became a game of cat-mouse, with Red Army troops fleeing overwhelming force, only to reappear in an area later, provoking the same cycle to start all over again. Because of the protective mountains, the local KMT officials could never summon the wherewithal to launch a campaign to dislodge them completely, though. Mao's development of the base camp concept was mirrored in northern Guangdong by another communist military leader, Zhu Di. Zhu had been a KMT military commander that had converted his allegiances over to the CPC while the two parties had been in alliance. During the autumn uprisings, he had been one of the commanders of the force that had tried to take Nancheng. When that army had fallen apart, he steered the remnants of his original command that had stuck with him down south into Guangdong. 
A sympathetic warlord in the area allowed him to settle there with no fuss, which was very kind of him. From there, he had gone in touch with Mao in early December 1927. Planning on a collaboration with his neighbor to the north, Zhu marched in that general direction into southeast Honan, basically right across the provincial border from Mao. It was here that Shanghai tried to insert itself to improve its influence, but only left Mao in a stronger position. Another survivor of the abortive attack on Nanchang had been a man known as Zhao Enlai, and yes, if you know your history on communist China, you already know he's destined to become Mao's very uneasy number two. But for right now, Zhao was looking to get rid of Mao entirely. They had worked together in mid-1927 to organize some uprisings that had come to nothing, and evidently the two didn't gel at first. Also, Zhao was very big on party discipline and control, and since he was in charge of military affairs, he really wanted to rein in Mao's activities. He recognized fully the potential of Mao establishing a power base of his own independent of the Politburo, and he didn't like it one bit. So he wound up using an agent of the Hunan Provincial Committee to assume command of Mao and Zhu's base camps. The provincial committees were basically the conduits connecting the Politburo with any local authorities, uh, local authorities in this case being Mao and Zhu. And in case you're wondering, this organization was a holdover from a time when the CPC was a functioning body and not representative of the reality on the ground. The agent in question, a guy named Zhao Lu, was basically one of the last surviving members of the Hunan Provincial Committee, and Zhao Enlai was basically having him use his prior standing to knock Mao down a peg. And it worked. Briefly. Mao wasn't one to break ranks within the party, so when Zhao Lu arrived in early March, he accepted his authority as a leading member in the region. And Zhao Lu didn't pull any punches either, informing Mao that he could consider himself not only subordinate to Zhu Di, he was also expelled from the Communist Party and could consider himself acting as a helpful associate as a local commander. Mao was stunned at the slap in the face, but soldiered on. Him being expelled was also a falsehood on Zhao Lu's part. He merely wanted to break down Mao's authority as much as humanly possible. The first order of business for Zhu and Mao's forces come the spring was to launch a general uprising in southern Hunan, a move that Mao was not thrilled about given the disparity of resources between them and the KMT. Nevertheless, Zhao Lu pressed, as he figured him being one of the last party officials left in Hunan would mean a successful uprising would make him a leading figure in the party. Too bad for him, it blew up in his face, as the uprising in March 1928 wasn't just unsuccessful, it got Zhao Lu captured and executed by KMT forces. Zhu's troops were caught against far greater KMT forces, and it was only with the arrival of Mao's own soldiers that he was saved and both groups could hightail it back to southern Zhongxi. April was then spent clearing out Jingongshan, as Mao, moving into Hunan, had left his home base wide open for a KMT-aligned militia. That militia, composed of fighters recruited by irate landlords, didn't have quite the fighting spirit of the Red Army, though, and was swept away in short order and the base camp reclaimed. Mao and Zhu finally came face to face, which was kind of an important meeting, as Zhu Di would be a leading Red Army commander from here on out, and would be the first commander-in-chief of the eventual People's Liberation Army. He had also led a colorful life, which I'm going to sketch out here real quick. Zhu was born into poverty, though his greater family scraped together enough to get him an education, and eventually he wound up serving in the Beiyang Army before transferring to Yunnan before the Double Ten Revolution. He became a brigade commander in the network of warlord alliances that formed the Yunnan clique, where he also developed a severe opium habit. He eventually decided enough was enough and traveled to Shanghai to get some rehab treatment in 1922. There, he became exposed to Marxist ideas and got really into it. He tried to join the CPC at the time, but they turned him down on account of him being a warlord. 
He went to Europe and studied Marxism for three years in Berlin. There, he actually met Zhao Enlai, who sponsored his membership into the CPC. In 1925, Zhu was expelled from Germany and returned to China, securing a commission in the Guangdong Provincial Army that was soon brought under the control of the KMT. The rest from there was that he participated in the Northern Expedition until Cheng broke the KMT-CPC alliance, and Zhu sided with the communists, who had commanded his loyalty already for years. He wasn't much of a thinker, but was an enthusiastic and a forceful commander, which was a good complement to Mao's more contemplative approach to command. Zhu also had good news for Mao upon their meeting on April 28th. He had never been expelled from the party, and Zhao Lu had been full of it. The handful of remaining provincial officials also learned a lesson from Zhao Lu and decided not to try and insert themselves in the guerrilla war. Mao was given official command of the entire Hunan-Jiangxi border area, and the combined force was renamed the 4th Red Army. Zhu took over military leadership, Mao the political side, which all in all was a perfect arrangement. Which was good, because the KMT would be launching near-constant attacks, which were repulsed, but also meant there was little peace. Still, the fact that the base camp was only pressured and not destroyed spoke to the effectiveness of Mao's tactics. The position of the Politburo had always been that the revolution in China would be carried out by mass uprisings by the workers and peasants seizing power themselves. However, these strategies have failed badly, and not just in the autumn uprisings. Under pressure from the Comintern, which is to say Moscow, the Politburo had ordered another mass uprising in December 1927 in Guangzhou. On the 11th of that month, some 20,000 soldiers with communist sympathies were supposed to storm the city and organize its proletariat into revolutionary action. While the city was taken, only 2,000 of the soldiers actually had weapons on them, compared to the 15,000 NRA troops in the area that swooped in to crush the uprising. This was another instance where calling it a battle would be a little too generous, and after only two days, Guangzhou was back in KMT hands. Most of the CPC supporters simply fled, and unfortunately for the party, it was the true believers that stuck around to die, of which some 6,000 did, some during the fighting, some during the executions that followed. So yeah, the official party line really wasn't working. Mao, though, offered a different strategy, one that the Politburo started coming around to in spring 1928. He saw the peasantry as the only resource the party had access to, which was entirely true. He also acknowledged that the peasantry, by and large, just wanted to be left alone with enough land to survive on. In his own land redistribution projects, the peasants were more than happy to accept land confiscated from the landlords. But once that process had been completed, they tended to revert back to being apolitical and not actively supportive of the revolutionary cause. Mao's solution was that reliable military forces had to be built up over time, even if in relatively small numbers, in order to take and hold a specific area. From there, a revolutionary government would be established and the area organized along communist principles. This would then either be repeated elsewhere or a successful base camp would spread its operations outwards. There would not be a sudden and complete revolution, but rather small areas incubating revolutionary conditions and educating the masses and indoctrinating them into the movement. Under the given circumstances, the revolution would have to be a gradual process instead of something that happened all at once which was something the Politburo didn't want to hear even in 1928, but the lack of success anywhere finally made them come around to accepting the thesis as valid by June. An important element to Mao's success was also he made special care to not offend the civilian population. He directed his troops to avoid stealing, to be courteous to the civilians, as well as treating prisoners with respect. 
That last one was also a useful source of new recruits. As I mentioned earlier, KMT fighters were oftentimes impressed with the good treatment they received from the Red Army and defected over or became communist agents. Unfortunately for the CPC as a whole, though, Mao and Zhu's limited success in southern Zhongxi were one of the few bright lights for them. For the Shanghai leadership, the failures of 1927 have reduced them badly in the eyes of international communism. The Sixth Party Congress of the CPC that was held from June to July 1928 had to be held in the Soviet Union, as the risk of everyone being picked up by the KMT was simply too great to meet in Shanghai. They didn't even get to have the Congress in any place of prominence, being accommodated by the Russians in a ruined Dasha 40 miles outside Moscow. The reliance on the Soviets was further underscored by the meetings being attended, and in some cases effectively led by, Nikolai Bukharin, who was there acting as Stalin's proxy. The Congress itself didn't push anything new, just confirming that their future was to be in a peasant guerrilla war, which was a reality already on the ground. The other big news to come out of the conference were further leadership shuffles that resulted in the new Politburo leaders being picked men by the Soviets. In exchange for this support, the new round of party leaders agreed to subordinate themselves to the Comintern's direction. This was made more palatable for the Politburo as it gave them cover to begin asserting themselves on the overall party again, securing networks of control that had fallen away in the chaos of the past year. Especially under the auspices of one Li Lushan, provincial and local committee members who refused to obey orders coming out of Shanghai were removed and strenuous discipline was re-established. This authoritarian nature would come back to haunt Li, and his willingness to sack and remove so many comrades for not immediately falling in line would make him a slew of enemies, although all that will have to wait for next season. And despite the larger party coming around to his line of thinking, conditions on the ground got worse for Mao going into the back half of 1928. With Cheng and the KMT's attentions zeroed in firmly in northern China at this time, which we'll get into next week, the CPC was allowed some breathing room, and that meant the provincial committees of the party began to come back online, including the ones for Jiangxi and Hunan. Suddenly, Mao had much more active political superiors badgering him to be ever bolder in his attacks. He fended them off by utilizing the special authority he had been granted for the borderlands between the provinces, but he definitely had guys looking over his shoulder again. This turned into a disaster, as the local KMT forces made another bid to attack Jingongsheng. This attack was anticipated, and Zhu was dispatched with a pair of regiments to sneak over into southern Hunan and let the KMT troops pass by them on their way north. With Zhu behind the KMT forces, Mao would meet them from the front, and the two would catch the KMT in a pincer. Except that didn't happen. A member of the Hunan Provincial Committee got in touch with Zhu and ordered his troops to ignore the advancing Kuomintang forces and attack the city of Hangyang instead, which was what the committee had asked Mao to do earlier, a plan that had been rejected. Zhu, though, didn't question party authority and struck south. The attack failed, Zhu's forces were almost completely destroyed, meanwhile Mao was pushed back by the larger KMT force engaging him and him alone. They fell back to Jingongshan, again abandoning most of their gains, and were only able to escape when a couple hundred Red Army troops held thousands of KMT troops in a narrow mountain pass on August 30th. The provincial officers didn't let up, though, and constantly undermined Mao's authority, removing his command of the borderlands and subordinating him to their authority. He was still respected as the idea man who had devised their winning strategy, but none of the provincial party leaders wanted him in a position of power, and they said as much to his face. However, it was that success as an idea man that saved Mao from the machinations of his fellow party members. While the party congress that had affirmed his ideas had been held from June to July, its determinations only made their way to a region as isolated as southern Zhongxi by November, 
and the word was most definitely good for Mao. Not only was his strategy publicly hailed, he was personally put in command of a new front committee. This committee was special because it covered both the party and the Red Army of any areas falling under the control of the base camp, superseding the provincial committees. Mao was back in charge of his little fiefdom once again, and he wasn't going to be outmaneuvered again. He set to work rebuilding his 4th Red Army and also doing some house cleaning of the party apparatus that he now found himself in charge of. And by house cleaning, I mean he started a purge. Okay, so this wasn't as bad as other purges we'll be covering, and it was mostly him dismissing party members he considered unreliable. Uh, there had been a lot of opportunists, especially from the bourgeois, that had joined up when they were doing well, and he showed them the door. It was just as well, as the coming winter was going to be a hard one, and the communists would benefit from a leaner organization. The army was still in bad shape, and the areas under their control couldn't support them. Their main recourse was sweeping surrounding areas for landlords to shake down, either for food or money with which to buy food. Things were so bad by the end of 1928 that when an opium crop was seized, Mao abandoned the moral high ground and allowed the drug to be sold in order to acquire food. And then to close out 1928, a group of defectors showed up on his doorstep. The appearance of 800 deserters from the Kuomintang in December 1928 was a logistical burden that couldn't be endured, so it was resolved to go on the attack. The base camp would have to be abandoned for want of supplies, and the group would have to break out further south to areas with more food available. Plus, there were 25,000 KMT troops bearing down on them, and that was a force that couldn't be resisted in their increasingly impoverished state. The combined force marched south, taking snow and ice-covered mountain pathways that were barely trails. Unbeknownst to them, the 800 newcomers were served up as a distraction, pinning the main nationalist force in the mountains while Mao and Zhu's 3,500 men made their escape. They would be an army on the run, deprived of a home base and eating off the land as they sought out a new one. They'd wind up in northern Guangdong by January 1929, but with the NRA hot on their heels, would be forced to move east. I'll pick back up on the chase next season, as their activities eventually drew the personal attentions of Chang and the main part of his army. The terrifying thing is that even though I'm leaving the CPC in a pretty bad way here at the start of 1929, it's somehow only going to get worse for them in the future. Next season, look forward to more Soviet interference, Mao and Zhao and Lai snapping at each other, more guerrilla war shenanigans, and a really long walk across China you might have heard of. Like so many other organizations in this period, the CPC should have stopped existing, and like all the ones I've covered in the past, they stuck it out through a mixture of stubbornness and an unflinching belief in their cause. The Kuomintang might be the dominant faction of this narrative's time frame, but the CPC will be its constant shadow. It would always be there, and always weighed heavily on the minds of Chang and his subordinates. By pulling away his attentions and military forces, the CPC would be outsized players in the conflicts to come. But while the CPC was enduring its tribulations during 1928, the KMT was experiencing its moment of greatest triumph. Join me next week as I finally conclude the Northern Expedition. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.